Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Well, hello everyone. This is Adrian Davis, one of the pastors out of uh, CGI Burlington. And uh, this is a study that I did yesterday, part of our public Bible study campaign that runs for a year. It is the fourth in a series, a 12-part series. And yesterday's study was entitled, The Doctrine of the Trinity. And basically, I'm showing in this Bible study why the Trinity is a doctrine that is false. Uh, We had a problem with the recording yesterday, so I'm re-recording it here at home, and I just ask you to bear with me if there's any background noises, but I had so many people requesting a copy of this uh, study, if I could make it available, after uh, we present it yesterday, because there is such an interest in this uh, topic. Now, the majority of the Christian world uh, basically define Christianity, that one is a Christian, upon their acceptance of the Trinity doctrine. And I'll just begin with a scripture in Revelation 12 and verse 9 that says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So here we see a being called Satan, the devil, which deceives the whole world. So this doctrine of the Trinity is a doctrine that is accepted by Catholics and Protestants. It defines orthodoxy within Christendom. And we are going up against this doctrine. We are saying that this doctrine is false. In fact, we are calling it heresy. It should not surprise us if the majority of the world is non-Christian and the majority of Christians are heretics. These are strong words, and I apologize in advance for offending anybody, but I cannot apologize for teaching the truth of God. Turn with me to Acts 17 and verse 10, and notice this in Acts 17, where the Apostle Paul was teaching the truth of God, and it was not accepted by the Jews in Thessalonica. And the brethren had to uh, get Paul away from Thessalonica because of the the violence and the hostility of the Jews there. And it says in verse 10, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming there went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. So these Bereans are honored in the scripture because despite what they previously believed, previous paradigms, they were willing to listen to Paul and then search the scriptures to see if these things are so. So what we have to present here may not be comfortable, But we're not looking for comfort, we're looking for truth, especially in the context of knowing that the devil deceives the whole world. So what is the Trinity doctrine? What is orthodoxy according to Christendom? Well, orthodoxy is defined by something called the Athanasian Creed. And if you are a Christian, 
you are expected to recite this creed and agree to it. And if you don't agree to it, you're considered a heretic. So what is this creed? Let me read it for you. At least part of it is quite long. But let me uh, give you the official definition of the Trinity, because most people don't really know what it is. And most people really do not pray to a Trinity. They don't think about a Trinity. They believe in God, but they say they believe in a Trinity. Here it is, the Athanasian Creed. Whosoever will be saved. So this is about salvation. If you don't accept this, you cannot be saved. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled? Without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost, and the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated, the Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, the Holy Ghost unlimited, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet, they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also, there are not three uncreated, nor three infinities, but one uncreated, and one infinite. So likewise the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Ghost Almighty. And yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons and co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved, let him thus think of the Trinity. So that's, that's about half of the creed, and it goes on with some more what I'll call mumbo-jumbo. No one understands this. There is not a person alive on the planet that can explain this. No one has ever been able to explain it. We are told, or rather I should say, we are intimidated. We are forced, we are compelled to accept this doctrine, which makes absolutely no sense and does not come out of the scriptures. It comes out of Greek philosophy. This is not describing the God of Israel. The God of Israel never describes himself as an essence. He never describes himself as infinite and limitless. This is Greek philosophical mumbo-jumbo, confusion. And what we're going to show in this Bible study, part of this series you've been lied to, is to show you the origin of this, this doctrine. So this Bible study is going to lean very heavily on the historical record. 
how did we get here? How did we come to this doctrine? And then in the, the sermon that I'll do later, I'm, or uh, it's recorded now, you'll, it'll be part two of this series, um, it will show the true nature of the God of Israel. So first we will completely negate the Trinitarian doctrine, and then we will show you the true nature of God. Turn to Acts 6, verse 26, where it says here, in terms of, you know, the Athanasian Creed says, you have to accept this confusion that no one can explain. You know, there's a basic mathematical, logical principle that says, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. This is reality. This is truth. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. But here we're saying uh, the Father is God and God is the Son, but the Father is not the Son. And so one is not the other, but one is this and one is not that. And, and nobody can explain this. It's complete confusion. Is this what the Bible says we have to accept? That we have to ex accept this confusion in order to be saved? Look at Acts 6, beginning in verse 26, where it shows where Paul and uh, I believe it was Silas were, were uh, jailed. And it says here, beginning in Acts 16, 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened. So there's a miracle here where they were in jail, and suddenly all the doors are opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors opened, he drew out his sword. Like there is no way he's going to face the Roman officials and say, I let these prisoners go. So he drew out his sword and he would have killed himself. He would have committed suicide, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried out in a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And let's begin by saying Paul is the most brilliant writer in the New Testament. This man had an incredible mind. And I certainly hope that the great theologians don't think that they are greater than Paul. And so Paul is going to be asked, what do I have to do to be saved? And let's see if he tries to explain Trinitarian mumbo-jumbo confusion, or if he just makes it very plain what needs to be done to be saved. Acts 16, verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the question. What do I have to do to participate in salvation? What do I have to do? What do I have to believe? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, and your house. There is no mention here of Trinity. In fact, let me go further and say that had Paul began to teach a Trinitarian doctrine to the Jews in Berea or in Thessalonica or Jerusalem or anywhere where he was, he would have a lot of explaining to do. And there would be a tremendous amount of conflict and grief. He, he faced conflict and grief over circumcision. And, and, and we're trying to, we have to accept that he taught the Trinity and there was no conflict and grief recorded at all. Doesn't make any sense. So here he simply says, 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved in your household. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night. So this is, here's, here's what you should believe. He took them the same hour, washed their stripes, and was baptized. He and all his straight away. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. So what do I have to do to be saved? This is it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this, we see a similar question at, at, asked in Acts 2, beginning in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles. So they realized they killed Jesus Christ and they are now repentant. And they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, how do we get right with God? What do we have to do to be saved? Then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No mention here of Trinity. No mention here that, you know, I know that you know Yahweh, but now you need to realize that the Holy Spirit is, is a person, and God the Father is a person, and these three are one, and the one is three, and these are three distinct people, but one being, and there's no, no effort at all to try to explain any of this. And, and we need to understand why all of a sudden, in the course of history, does this Trinitarian doctrine become compulsory when there's no evidence of it in the scripture? So here, what shall we do to be saved? Simply repent and uh, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No mention here that the Holy Spirit is a person that needs to be worshipped. For the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord your God shall call. Now, Trinity or triads are not new or were not new to the ancient world. In fact, it was a very common understanding that in polytheism, you had three gods that you worshipped. And someone as far as to say the three gods are, three gods are one. So, so this concept of a triune godhead is not new. It's something that is popular in paganism. From the website landofpyramids.com, they speak of Egyptian triads. And it says this, These religious cults provided the basis of ancient Egyptian religion. The names of the cults indicated the number of major gods worshipped in the cult and the location of the cult center. Often, listen to this, often three favored gods were worshipped which are referred to as a triad. This is ancient Egypt. And in ancient Egypt, they often worshipped three gods and referred to them as a triad. If you look in Wikipedia and look up the, the entry, triple deity, do a, do a search in Wikipedia for triple deity. Here's what you'll find. A triple deity, sometimes referred to as a threefold, triple, triplicate, tripartite, triune, triadic, or as a trinity, is a deity associated with the number three. So, a deity associated with the number three. Listen to this. Such deities, or gods, are common 
throughout world mythology, all over the world, a triple deity, a triad to be worshipped is common. This is common all over the world. The number three has a long history of mythical associations. Carl Jung considered the arrangement of deities into triplets an archetype in the history of religion. It is just something that is prevalent. All over in these pagan societies, we see this construct of a triad god or a triune god. Wikipedia goes on to say, in religious iconography or mythological art, three separate beings may represent either a triad who always appear as a group or a single deity known from literary sources as having three aspects. I'm just going to read that again. This is so powerful. We think the Trinity is new, that it was something that was never known, and it's, it's true Christianity. Well, wait a minute. All these pagans all over the world, this is such a common way of worship that Carl Jung, in his analysis of religion, says this is an archetype. This is just a common structure that we see all over the world, all over paganism. I'll, say this, I'll read this paragraph again. In religious iconography or mythological art, three separate beings may represent either a triad who always appear as a group or a single deity known from literary sources as having three aspects. And then it goes on to show all the different types of uh, tri triads that are worshipped. Now this notion of a triad is something that comes also from Greek philosophy. Plato, in his writings, referred to as the ultimate God, as the good. So in his writings, there was this highest God that he called the good, and really saw the objective of life as being reconciled with the good. But this God was so high, so pure, so noble, that he had nothing to do with the material world. So there was another God underneath the great God called the Demiurge, sometimes referred, referred to as the Logos. And he, the Demiurge, is the one that created the material universe because the great God is too good to interact with matter. Underneath the Demiurge is what he called the world soul. So the God, the great God, the good, the Demiurge, and the world soul, a, a triadic construct in Greek philosophy. And this is how the philosophers taught about God as the Greeks were coming out of all their um, Zeus and Hercules, and um, whether these Greek and Roman gods have different names, but they were coming out of this concept, uh, realizing that these gods really didn't have the answer to life. And the philosophers now started to put together, uh, particularly Plato, a construct to explain metaphysically what is going on, and came up with this triadic structure. Now we must remember that the Greek philosophical, philosophical thinking was spread all over the world by Alexander the Great. That he was a student of Aristotle. Aristotle was a student of Plato. Plato was a student of Socrates. And Alexander the Great was so inspired. He was a Macedonian, but he was so inspired by Greek philosophy and Greek culture that he took it and he conquered the whole world, basically. As far as, he went as far as India with Greek philosophy. And Greek was referred to as Hellas, and that process was referred to as Hellenization. So Alexander the Great Hellenized the whole world. And with that, brought Greek thinking 
and philosophy to the whole world. It's very interesting that when you look at the history of Greek thinking, it really begins with a philosopher called Pythagoras. I shouldn't say begins there, but it's a pronounced beginning is with Pythagoras. There were some philosophers before him. But what he brought to, to, to Greek thinking was the notion that the spirit, anything spiritual is good and anything material is evil. That thinking never left Greek thinking, Greek philosophy. From there, we have a number of philosophers that rise up until we see the great philosophers in Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And they all just accepted this notion as a given, that if something is spiritual, it's good, and if something is material, it's evil. And then that thinking has been spread throughout the whole world by Alexander the Great. This is a very, very interesting development, because what we have from the Hebrew scriptures is we have God making a covenant with Israel and speaking through Hebrew prophets. That covenant being then referred to as the old covenant and, and when Christ comes and sheds his blood and starts a new covenant with Israel. And then the Apostle Paul takes this gospel truth and spreads it all over the world. Very interesting that God uses Paul, who was a Hellenized Jew, who spoke in the Greek language, the same language that Alexander the Great spread throughout the whole world, and now Paul is able to use this vehicle of Greek language to spread the gospel to the whole world. But it's very, very interesting that God stopped speaking to Israel around 425 BC. And for the next 400 years, he didn't speak to Israel. And it's in that period of God's silence with Israel that the Greek thinking comes to fruition and really comes to its, its culmination through Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and then Alexander the Great. So by the time the gospel comes through Christ and then through the Apostle Paul, Greek thinking and Greek culture has been spread all over the world. And the Greek Koine language is being used all over the world. So that's great because now the, the gospel can be spread in a common language that everyone understands to the whole world. But what's not great is there's going to be a clash of philosophies that when the, the Jews are using the Greek language to communicate the gospel, that that language, which is very capable of abstract thinking, it's a very powerful language, and it enabled the Greeks to really advance in their thinking above and beyond all of the other cultures in the world. So it's a very powerful language. But embedded in the language is the philosophy. And so when Paul comes along talking about the Logos, well, the Greeks already understand the Logos. That's in their philosophy. And so we're using the same words, but they have different meanings. There's a, there's a different meaning to the Hebrew mind of the Logos than there is to the Greek philosopher mind when he hears the Logos. And this is going to create a problem. And, and this is the basis of the Trinitarian or the problem with the Trinity. Whether we are looking at the Godhead through the Hebrew mindset and worldview or through the Greek philosophical mindset and worldview. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, which is a, a chapter that's dealing with the resurrection. And for the Greek mind, for the Greek philosopher, this is a very difficult concept. Because we know, if we're Greek, that anything that is material is evil. And so now we have God becoming a man... That's a concept that just 
the, the Greek mind cannot understand. Not only did he become a man, but he died and he was resurrected and he was seen to be a man again. So now we clearly see that God is interacting with the material world. And to the Greek mind, this is a very difficult concept. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and, and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand. So Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. By which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. So the Greek mind now has to reconcile these, these occurrences, this happening, with the scriptures. If they accept the scriptures, this happened according to the scriptures. And he was buried... And he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And notice this, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen above 500 brethren at once. So, you know, where two witnesses are, are there, every word is established. Well, here, over 500 brethren, many of them Greek, saw Christ at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. So there is absolutely no doubt Christ came to earth. He died, according to the scriptures. After three days and three nights in the grave, he was resurrected, and he was seen by over 500 brethren. And if you don't believe me, many of them are still alive to this day. And you can get them all together, and they'll tell you what they saw. So the Greek mind now has to reconcile the fact that Christ was a man, that he died, rose again, and interacted with the material world. This is no small controversy, no small challenge to the Greek philosophical mind. Look at Acts 17. Acts 17 and verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. So he just, he couldn't remain quiet. He's looking at them and they're just full of idolatry. He's got, to, he's got to preach the gospel. So his spirit was stirred within him. Therefore, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and the market daily with them that met him. So he's constantly going in there and disputing with both the Jews and the Greeks. Then certain philosophers, notice the Greek philosophical mind now is, is going to confront the gospel. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? And other some, He seems to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. This was a problem for the Greek mind, that, that God would come to earth and interact with matter. And not only that, that he, when he died... It wasn't that this, the, the Greek mind believed that there was an immortal soul inside the human body, and that soul was spirit, and it was good. And the, the body was evil, and so men had evil cravings because of the body. But when they died, this immortal soul would be released and go back to heaven. And Paul didn't preach that. Paul preached that Christ died, and he was dead for three days and three nights. And then he was resurrected and interacted with the material world. So they were just like, this is weird. This, this, we know we have the truth. 
And what this man is teaching sounds bizarre. So they thought he was the setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof you speak is? <clears throat> For you bring certain strange things to our ears. Our Greek minds cannot grasp what you're saying. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And this is significant as well. That the Greek minds, they just love this sort of speculative speculative debate. And they love to hear new things and challenge and question each other and either tell something new or hear something new. And they love this speculation. This is going to be important later in terms of the roots of the Trinity. Dropping down to verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection, so he begins explaining things to them. But when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, the Greek mind believes that the soul is immortal, it's spiritual. When you die, it's released from your body and it goes to heaven. So when Paul didn't teach that, he taught that the soul is mortal. And when people are dead, they're dead. And yet, there's a hope that they can be resurrected and they'll be always embodied. They will always have a body. First a physical body, then a pneumatic body. And when he taught this to them, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. It was the most ridiculous thing they had ever heard. They just laughed. But others said, we will hear you again of this matter. So Paul was making so much sense that even though he was making sense, many of them just laughed. They couldn't, they couldn't digest it. But others, his conviction, his logic, the clarity with which he spoke, even though it challenged their paradigm, they said, we want to hear you again. And verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. Notice verse 34. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. So some of these philosophers, they listened to Paul and they believed. Among the which was Dionysus the Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and, other, and others with them. So there were a number of these philosophers that accepted the gospel. Now, the church, the organized official church, says that its foundation is the church, the church fathers. And the church fathers, it groups into two categories. What are called the apostolic fathers and the apologists. So the apostolic fathers are those men that either knew the apostles directly and associated with them directly, or there's an unbroken line between the men who knew the apostles directly and these fathers. These are called the apostolic fathers, and you can read their writings. Uh, they're available on um, Amazon, uh, on the Kindle store. Many of them are, some of them are free. Some of them are just a couple of dollars. Um, interesting reading. Uh, you know, for the honor that's given to these men, they are quite weak in their theology, quite flat, quite um, very wanting. Uh, I, I'm completely unimpressed with their writings. 
Then there are the apologists. The apologists are the philosophers. And these are very well-educated men, very uh, highly educated, highly schooled, intelligent men. Their thinking and their writing is very impressive. And they're called the apologists, not because they are apologizing for Christianity. The, the Greek word apologia actually means to give a defense. And so they were defending Christians. And basically what they were doing was trying to show the Roman authorities who were persecuting Christians. First, they were uh, persecuting them locally here and there, and then it became empire-wide, and it became systematic to stamp out Christianity. And, and Christians were being burned alive. Uh, emperors would, would uh, set Christians uh, on fire in the evenings just so they could have light for their parties. They would feed them to lions. Uh, it was brutal. And the philosophers who had accepted Christianity... Uh, basically put together a defense for their faith. And so they were trying to convince the Roman authorities to leave the Christians alone, to understand, and what they were really doing was marrying Christianity with Greek philosophy and trying to demonstrate that Christianity, in fact, was the true philosophy and that all the teachings of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, uh, they were all coming to fruition in Christianity, in Christ. And especially with the similar terms such as the Logos, we talk about the Logos in, in the Bible. Well, Greek philosophers were talking about the Logos for centuries. And so they were able to show, look, it's the same thing. Justin Martyr, in fact, is one of the uh, most highly revered apologists. And he was a Platonic philosopher, steeped in Plato, and, and believed that Plato was a disciple of Moses and, and really pushed the integration. In fact, even after accepting Christ, he continued to be a, 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 an authoritative philosopher and married Greek philosophy with Christianity. So the church's foundation is the apologists and the, the apostolic fathers. But notice in Ephesians 2, the true church has a different foundation. Ephesians 2, speaking to the Gentiles, beginning in verse 11, Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So you're called Gentiles by the Jews. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So you Greeks were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. What you need to understand is that we're not coming into Greek philosophy. You didn't have it right. You're coming into the commonwealth of Israel, and you have to give up the Greek philosophy and accept the commonwealth and the teachings of the God of Israel. So you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. And, and you'll notice with these uh, Trinitarians, they don't understand the covenants of promise, and they don't teach this. Strangers from the covenants of promise because the covenants are not with Greeks. They're with Israel. Having no hope, and without God in the world. And then dropping down to verse 19. Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So we have accepted the Gentiles into Israel, and you're no longer foreigners. And verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Let's not read over this. 
you have to decide is is the foundation of your church the apostolic fathers with their very thin and fragile and superficial understanding of the scriptures or the apologists with their very rich philosophical understanding rooted in Plato and Socrates in fact they go as far as to call Socrates and Plato saints and 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 uh, prophets the greek prophets or is your foundation the apostles and the prophets the hebrew prophets because all of the apostles were jews and all of the prophets were israelites and jesus christ himself was a jew so we either have a hebraic foundation for our church and our faith or we have a greek foundation and we have to decide but when i read the scriptures here it's pretty clear to me that the greeks have been invited into the commonwealth of israel and the foundation for the church is hebraic now the catholics will say very clearly that the apostolic fathers are very important because of this unbroken line back to the apostles and what they say what this unbroken line means is that there were many teachings and much revelation that god had for his people but not all of them were written down in scripture many of them were passed on orally from the apostles to the apostolic fathers and from one apostolic father to another and they have this unbroken chain of revelatory communication from god through what they call the traditions through the apostolic fathers so they have both the scriptures as well as the teachings of the apostolic fathers and they hold them up equally because both represent revelation from god now the protestants when they resisted and 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 began the reformation in the middle ages they basically rejected this claim and said sola scriptura we only want to hear from the scriptures and that was the right approach it they 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 didn't mean it because they in fact did accept and I'll, this is how the getting to the trinity they did in fact accept this tradition from the apostolic fathers they shouldn't have but they did they accept the first seven ecumenical councils which is basically the the decision that these men have a right uh equal authority to the scriptures but should we be impressed with an unbroken chain of communication back to the apostles that's the question and to answer that question let's go to acts 20 acts 20 acts 20 beginning in verse 25 this is the apostle paul so we might have an unbroken line to the apostle paul should we be impressed with that the apostle paul is about to leave these teachers in ephesus i believe if i'm correct he's on his way to macedonia but uh, that might be incorrect in any case he's about to leave these elders in in ephesus and in acts 20 verse 25 it says and now behold i know that you all among whom i have gone preaching the kingdom of god shall see my face no more so the apostle paul is leaving them he's been with them he's been preaching the kingdom of god and now he's leaving wherefore i take you to record this day that i am pure from the blood of all men so you know no one can accuse the apostle paul of not teaching the true gospel and the full truth of the gospel he gave it to them all he gave all of it to them verse 27 for i have not shunned to declare to you 
all the counsel of God. I've given it all. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God. This is your job. This is your function. Feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. So you make sure you feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. And, and you know, again, this is speaking of Christ as God shedding his blood for the church. For I know this, this is what he knows. Should we be impressed with the fact that somebody personally knows the apostles or knew the apostles? Well, here's what Paul said. Here's his answer, whether or not we should be impressed. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So, so there's going to be some people that are going to infiltrate the church and the leadership of the church, and they're not going to spare the flock. That's not all. Verse 30 goes even further. Paul tells them, Also, of your own selves, I'm speaking to you elders, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul saw, he was with them for three years, he was teaching them the gospel, the full counsel of God, and he could see there's going to be problems. While I'm here, I can withstand the heresy. And, and the Trinitarians are going to behave like and teach us that uh, basically there was really no heresy very little heresy until the 4th century. And then they had to come together and pull a creed together. Well, from the moment the, do, the, the, the gospel of the, the kingdom of God was being taught, there was heresy. There was resistance. There was opposition. There, was, there were false teachers. And the church has always had to withstand false teachers. And Paul is telling the elders here, you make sure that you feed the flock the truth of God. Because there, there's going to be people coming in that need to be withstood. And even of your own selves, and, and probably you know the, some of the leaders were philosophers, highly educated, very articulate. It, it's, not, um, it's not a stretch of the imagination to say with a group of humble brethren that the more intelligent, the more articulate, uh, that th they would rise to leadership teaching roles. And Paul is saying, be careful. Of your own selves, you're going to have people arise teaching perverse things. So should we be impressed that somebody knew Paul directly? And just because he's left and they, they can say to us, well, I knew the Apostle Paul directly. And so we follow them anywhere. We accept whatever they say. Or do we read Paul's letter and say, well, I knew you knew the Apostle directly, but I don't really care. What I want to know is, what are you teaching? And how does that compare to what the Apostle taught? So, so let's not get hung up on the title Church Fathers. Let's instead examine what they're teaching. And let's not get hung up on ap apologists, Greek philosophers. Let's listen to what they're teaching and compare it to what the apostles actually taught. And it either agrees with the scriptures or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, we're going to say, uh-oh, just like the apostle warned, you're teaching perverse things, not sparing the flock. So, you know, the apologists were doing something that is very practical. They were trying to save lives, you know. Uh, 
and, and the way that they were doing this was syncretizing. So let's mix up the religion, let's blend it, let's, let's soften it, let's make it more acceptable to society. Let's show that it really is just Greek philosophy. And that way, it'll be acceptable. Well, that's a problem. You know, we're not to pervert the gospel of the kingdom. Even if it means we lose our lives, so be it. But we're not going to pervert the gospel of the kingdom. Colossians 2 and verse 6. Speaking of philosophy, Colossians 2 and verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him. Stay true to what you've been, what you've been taught, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Our foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And you can call somebody a church father, an apologist, you can say that they're great men, maybe they are great men, but they're not our foundation. Our foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And we're going to be established in their faith. As you have been taught. So we're, we're, we're going to stick to the teaching. Abounding therein with thanksgiving. It's such an incredible teaching. We're not going to mix it with Greek philosophy. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. So Paul warned us earlier that he knows this, that once he leaves... Grievous wolves are going to enter in, not sparing the flock. And in fact, of their own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw disciples away after them. So the perverse things they're going to teach are philosophical. It sounds right. It sounds intelligent. It sounds intellectual. It, it kind of, you know, yeah, logos, demiurge, uh, the good, uh, spirit is evil, spirit is good, matter is evil. All these things were being taught. And Colossians 2 verse 8 says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. And just as this was written to the early church in, in, in Colos, uh, back in the first century, we today have to have the same level of awareness, the same scrutiny, the same caution when people are teaching us, saying, this is what God says. We have to say, wait a minute, is this philosophy or is this the teaching of the, the God of Israel? And we're going to beware lest we are spoiled by people who will not spare the flock and are trying to seek a following for themselves. You know, it's interesting with this uh, philosophy that, as I mentioned earlier, the church actually refers to Socrates as Saint Socrates. Now, Socrates was a great man. He was a great thinker. Plato was a great man and a great thinker. Aristotle was a great man and a great thinker. And there have been these great thinkers. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, um, uh, the other man, Augustine, uh, Augustine, um, you know, John Calvin. These men are great, great thinkers. And, and in particular, Socrates was a profound thinker very concerned about life and, and, and living a good life and encouraging the Greeks to be moral people. And Plato, very concerned about the meaning of life and, and how to explain this universe. Very, very deep thinkers. Aristotle, very profound logician. Very strong in, in helping us understand how to think logically. Great, great men. But... Do they have anything to do with the God of Israel? And, and by calling him Saint Socrates and Saint Plato, 
what the what the Greeks are saying is yes, they do. In fact, uh, Clement of Alexandria taught that the well. I'll come back to that in a second. Let me just first talk about Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was um, the second century, an early apologist of the Christian faith. He was a Platonist who held that Plato was influenced by the writings of Moses. So he's basically saying Plato was a disciple of Moses, therefore Plato's okay. And he himself was a Platonic philosopher. And he held that the Christian faith is the true religion anticipated by the early prophets and philosophers. So he was an ardent student of philosophy, both Stoicism and Platonism, and he continued to teach philosophy, these philosophies, even after his conversion to Christianity. Now, that's what I wanted to talk about. Clement of Alexandria had the same pattern of thinking. So, so Justin Martyr is basically saying, as an apologist defending the faith, he's basically saying that Christianity was being pointed to not only by the Hebrew prophets, but also by the Greek philosophers. And Clement puts a finer point on this. Clement of Alexandria, uh, this is from the Early Church History 101, says Clement's first major work is entitled Exhortation to the Greeks. This is his first major work. And it is basically a call to the educated Greco-Roman society to hear the gospel of Jesus. So he had accepted Christianity, and now, as an apologist, he's writing out, not to the common Greeks, but to the upper class, the philosophers, those in authority. And he's saying to them, you need to understand that Christianity is the true philosophy. So he wrote this book, or this uh, writing, Exhortation to the Greeks. Many scholars say this is Clement's most graceful piece of writing. This exhortation is filled with numerous citations. Listen to this. It's filled with numerous citations, not from the Hebrew scriptures. So he's explaining Christianity, but he's not using the Bible. It says here, this exhortation is filled with numerous citations from the most popular Greek writers. Each citation being used to prove Clement's underlying arguments. This document reads like an anthology of Greek literature. And it is clear that Clement is not new to this literature. He is an educated man, and his use of Greek is of a high quality. This is amazing. So he is steeped in Greek philosophy, and he's using Greek philosophy and Greek literature to try to convert the upper classes, the educated, those in authority, to Christianity. And, and it reads like this, this, this exhortation. It doesn't read like scripture. It reads like an anthology of Greek literature. He goes on to say, Greek philosophy was a schoolmaster to the Greeks, just as the law was a schoolmaster to the Jews to bring them to Christ. So the Jews had the law, and ultimately that was just pointing them to Christ. Well, in the same way that the Jews and the Hebrews had the law, we Greeks had the philosophers. And the philosophers were just schoolmasters. And so now we can take all of this philosophy because it is fulfilled in Christ. And what he's doing is he is setting up a way of thinking to look to the philosophers as equal, maybe even superior to, 
the prophets. And this is dangerous. And this is where we begin to see the church just completely uh, lose its way. In fact, Clement of Alexandria is called Clement of Alexandria because he was schooled in Alexandria in Egypt. And this was, you know, today we think of Rome. If somebody says, you know, where's the head of the church? And if you're talking about the Catholic Church, people will say, well, it's Rome. Well, in the early first few centuries, Rome was nothing. Rome was not the head of the church. If in, in fact, if you had to say, where's the head of the church? You would either point to Antioch or most likely Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt had a phenomenal school that, you know, today we might see somebody in Saudi Arabia sending their children to uh, Harvard because of the reputation of the Harvard School of Business. So Alexandria was like this. People from all over the world would send their, their children uh, or try to get themselves to Alexandria to study because that was the height of education and had a li it had the, the uh, biggest library in the world. All the literature was there. And many Jews, Hellenized Jews, because Alexandria was Hellenized, Alexandria after, after Alexander, uh, many Jews were there, and a Jew called Philo in particular was there, who taught the Greek philosophers how to read the Bible allegorically. In other words, don't accept it for just what it says. You don't have to read it liter lit literally. You can allegorize, and everything can be symbolic. And so the, the philosophers learned from Philo how to interpret the Bible allegorically. And this way they could make it mean whatever they want it to mean, and they could make it match their Greek philosophy. Here in Wikipedia, speaking of the Alexandrian school, it says the name of the Alexandrian school is also used to describe the religious and philosophical developments in Alexandria after the first century. The mix of Jewish theology and Greek philosophy, it's a mix of Jewish theology and Greek philosophy led to a syncretic mix of much mystical speculation. This is really, really important because it is the root of the Trinitarian doctrine. Let me read it again. The mix, the mix of Jewish theology, in other words, the Hebrew scriptures, and Greek philosophy, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, we're going to mix the Bible and Greek philosophy, led to a syncretic mix of much mystical speculation. The Neoplatonists devoted themselves to examining the nature of the soul and sought communion with God. The two great schools of biblical interpretation in, early, in the early Christian church incorporated Neoplatonism and philosophical beliefs from Plato's teachings into Christianity and interpreted much of the Bible allegorically. The founders of the Alexandrian school of Christian theology were Clement of Alexandria and Origen, and, these, and Origen in particular, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. He, he's one of the church fathers. In, fact, in, the, in the end, he ended up a heretic, as did Tertullian and many of them, but brilliant, brilliant man. But listen to this again. I have to read this again. The two great schools of biblical interpretation in the early, in the early Christian church incorporated Neoplatonism, modern Platonism, and philosophical beliefs from Plato's teachings into Christianity. So Alexandria was the, was the center of the church. And what they were doing in Alexandria was incorporating Platonic thinking and Greek philosophy 
into Christianity. And they interpreted much of the Bible allegorically. So we can actually throw the Bible out the window and make it mean whatever we want it to mean and, and make it match Greek philosophy. The Erdman's Handbook of uh, the History of Christianity says of Tertullian that he drew upon the philosophy of Stoicism for much of his language. And Tertullian is the one that gave us the, the word Trinity or trin Trinitus in, in the Latin. And um, he, he was so brilliant, in fact, I think he invented some 600 words that the, the, the language was too small for him and he had to create words. And one of the words he created was Trinitas, and in English, Trinity. And he described the Godhead as, as matching this platonic way of thinking of the good, the demiurge, or the logos, and then the world soul. And, and use that to create this trinity. But he himself would be considered a heretic, according to the Athanasian Creed. Because he did not see them as equal. He saw Christ as subordinate to the Father, and the Spirit as subordinate to both Christ and the, the, um, the Father. Now, this is all important because these churches in Alexandria, and, and where the gospel was originally preached, are where the Greek philosophers were thriving. The other churches in the West basically came into Christianity because they were told by Constantine, Christianity is now the state religion. And so, you know, if you want to get anywhere in life, if you want to get anywhere in your career, you need to be Christian. <clears throat> so the West, <clears throat> a very, very different approach to Christianity than the East. And we saw earlier in Athens the philosophers just loved to get together and hear something new or teach something new, and they were constantly philosophizing. Well, the head, the head of the church is Alexandria, and they're being all educated here in Alexandria, and they're into philosophy and marrying uh, Christianity with Greek philosophy. And, and they're hearing some new thing and teaching some new thing. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 22. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 22, and then we're going to get into the root and the origin of the Trinity. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 22, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. This is Paul's assessment as he's preaching to the two cultures, and he's, he's debating with the Jews, and he's debating with the Greeks, he's in the synagogues, he's in the marketplace, his assessment of the two cultures. One is that the Jews require a sign. Why is that? And the Greeks seek after wisdom. Why is that? Well, the Jews have the scriptures. The Jews are the one with the covenant. And so they're looking at the covenant, and they're looking at the scriptures and the teachings of the prophets, and they're looking for a sign to see the fulfillment of the prophecies that have been given to them. They have the truth. What they're looking for is the fulfillment of the prophecies that they have. The Greeks do not have the truth. So they're constantly seeking for some new thing. They're looking for wisdom, and they developed a language that was capable of very profound and very abstract thought. And there's no other culture that's produced a Socrates, or produced a, a Plato, or an Aristotle. This type of thinking is, is a, is a, a uh, function of the precision of the language and the robustness of the language. We basically think with language. And this... this uh, Language is capable of these, this abstract thinking. And God uses this language to communicate the gospel. But they don't have the truth. 
And they're constantly seeking for wisdom. But verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, this is a stumbling block. They had their paradigm. They had everything worked out. And in a sense, they were kind of arrogant. And they wouldn't accept Christ crucified. But that's what we preach. That the Messiah crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. They can't get their head around this. That matter is not evil. And that God would come in the flesh and die and be crucified and raised again and be embodied. This is foolishness to the Greek mind. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, if God allows our minds to be opened, whether Jew or Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. It doesn't say no wise men, no mighty, no noble men are called. Not many. Most of the brethren that are accepting the truth are humble, you know, simple people. But there are some philosophers, there are some mighty men that have accepted the truth. If God opened their mind. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So we mustn't look to the, the great philosophical minds for the truth. God has chosen the weak, the base things, the simple people to reveal his truth to. And it's, in, and, 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 and it's so that, verse 29, no flesh should glory in his presence. Okay, so now let's get to the Trinity doctrine. And how did it come about? Because it certainly doesn't come from the Bible. It absolutely does not come from the Bible. There was a bishop in Alexandria named Alexander. And back then, the way the church was structured, bishops had responsibility over multiple church areas. And elders or presbyters were responsible for one church, one congregation. So there's the bishop of Alexandria called Alexander. And there was a presbyter named Arius. Arius was a very charismatic teacher, very popular teacher, and Alexander was, was preaching a sermon, and it's important to note this, Arius was educated in Alexandria. He was a student of Tertullian. He was a student of uh, Clement of Alexandria. He was a student of Origen. He studied these writings of these men that are, quote-unquote, the church fathers. And as he listened to Alexander preaching, and you know, the way that we're taught the, the Trinity, the history of the Trinity, is just not true. We're taught that there was this heretic called Arius, and he tried to teach this uh, doctrine that Christ was not God. And, you know, a council was called, convened in Nicaea, and they all agreed that Arius was teaching heresy, and so they excommunicated him and defined very clearly what Orthodox Christianity is. That is so incredibly false. That is just not true. That is not how, that occurred, how, how the history occurred. So Arius was listening to Alexander preaching and was listening where he was teaching like Christ and God were equal, and, and that's not what he learned in Alexandria, in the school of Alexandria. So he accused the bishop of heresy. 
Well, the bishop has an ego. He's bishop over multiple churches. He's not going to uh, allow a presbyter to, to accuse him of heresy. So he convened a church council of, of the uh, Alexandrian churches. And he charged Arius with heresy. And he excommunicated Arius. Well, Arius went to Nicomedia and went to the bishop of Nicomedia, a man called Eusebius, and appealed for help. Explained to him what he was teaching and how it was in accordance with the church fathers and what Alexander was teaching and how it was heresy. And Eusebius of Nicomedia agreed with him. And he accepted Arius and he excommunicated Alexander. So Eusebius, uh, sorry, not Eusebius, uh, Arius now is feeling much more confident. He started to, to go out and preach his teaching. And as I mentioned earlier, he was a very charismatic man. And in fact, he was poetic. He was very good at writing songs. And he put his doctrine to music, very popular music that people could easily recite. And, and it would say things like, um, I, th I think some of the wording would go something like, uh, if you want to know the doctrine of the Logos, I can serve it piping hot. The Christ is the Logos, and there was a time when he was not. And he would have these sort of lyrics like this that were very simple to remember, and people would begin singing this thing, and his doctrine spread all over Alexandria. And what ensued was a bitter conflict between Arius, the presbyter, and Alexander, the bishop. And, and it, it engulfed all of Alexandria, into this very intense conflict. It became a violent conflict. Well, Constantine, the emperor, who had just recently united the whole empire, because before him, Diocletian, as the emperor, uh, divided the Roman Empire. It was getting so large and unwieldy that he divided it in, into four parts, an east and a west, and each would have an Augustus, and under the Augustus, each would have a Caesar. And, and, and they would then co-rule the empire. Well, that was a disaster because instead of a you know, very easy transition and succession that if the Caesar, if the Augustus died, the Caesar could just naturally take over. Uh, there was just plot and intrigue and plotting and intrigue and, and uh, you know, people plotting to kill each other and so that they could take over the empire. So it was a disaster. Long story short, Clementine uh, crushes the other emperor of the West, the emperors of the West, and he now has the whole empire united. And... On the heels of this, he then gets wind of this bitter conflict in Alexandria that is spreading and, and threatens to split the whole empire. So he wants to use Christianity as a tool to unite the whole empire. Prior to this, uh, you could have whatever religion you want. You could mix it however you want. As long as you worship the emperor, we're all good. Now what, what um, Constantine sees is Christianity is a religion that's a world religion. Any culture, anybody, male, female, old, young, any background, any ethnic background, everybody can be Christian. And he saw the devotion that Christians had, how dedicated they were to this religion. And he saw that he could make this the state religion. And there's a bit of a story there about a dream he had and this sign conquer. And so anyway, you know, apparently some miracle that allowed him to uh, conquer his rival and he became a quote-unquote a Christian. He was never baptized until his deathbed, but he claimed to be converted and to be a Christian and wanted to use Christianity to unite the empire. Well, he gets wind of this bitter conflict between Arius and Alexander. And what the Christian theologians and historians are trying to teach us is that he immediately called a council 
to uh, get to the bottom of it, to identify the heresy, and to uh, excommunicate Arius as a heretic. That's not what happened. When he got wind of this conflict, here's what he did. He wrote a letter to Arius, and he wrote a letter to Alexander. And this is what the letter said. Having inquired faithfully into the origin and foundation of your differences, I find their cause to be of a truly insignificant nature and quite unworthy of such fierce contention. In other words, whether Christ is a creation, a created being, or whether Christ is God, you guys shouldn't be arguing about this. I've looked into it, and it is truly insignificant. I find the cause of your conflict to be of a truly insignificant nature and quite unworthy of such fierce contention. It was wrong ever to propose such questions as these or to reply to them when propounded. So here's the most powerful man in the world writing to these people and saying, what you're arguing about is stupid. It's meaningless. It's insignificant. Stop it. The problem was it had gone beyond them. It was, it was, people were fighting in the streets over this. And so writing them a letter, it was too late, too little, too late. But make sure we're clear here, Constantine didn't care. Not only did he not care what the conflict was about, he thought it was truly insignificant. Well, because this thing was still uh, erupting and threatened to erupt the whole empire, um, and, 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 you know, in one, in, in, in Nicomedia, Arius was accepted, but in Alexandria, he was rejected. Uh, Constantine had the idea now to call an ecumenical council. Ecumenical means general. So he would pull all the bishops of Christendom together, of, his, all, of the empire. All of them will come together and decide this matter once and for all. Because what he cannot have is he cannot have the empire being... Uh, disrupted and split and, and, and disunited over, over this doctrine. So we need everybody believing the same thing. So he calls this ecumenical council, the first ecumenical council, and he invited all the bishops in his empire. And not only them, but they could bring two presbyters and, and I believe one or two assistants. And it would be all expenses paid. So just get here. I'll cover all of your expenses. Of all the bishops, and there were some six or seven hundred of them, only three hundred came, just over three hundred. And of those three hundred that came, only seven came from the West. The, the Western church really didn't see the issue. They were like Constantine. This is insignificant. But in the East, it was more significant. And, and also uh, there was an issue around the Passover that had to be addressed at the Council at Nicaea. So some were keeping the Passover, uh, others wanted to no longer keep it, but keep Easter. And uh, there were some organizational structural issues that needed to be addressed, which churches should be the head churches, which, which bishops should be more important than other bishops. And so there were a number of other issues that were on the agenda. So that the Eastern church, the Eastern bishops cared about these things. The Western bishops didn't care and didn't uh, show up. So out, out of over 300 bishops, only seven came from the West. This, this question of whether or not Christ was God just wasn't that important. But to the East, where most of the philosophers were, the Greek philosophers, 
this was important and they wanted to uh, get get to the bottom of this now these men that came together we have this view or we're taught this view that you know these righteous bishops these holy bishops came together and they sat and they talked and they explained each side of the issue to each other and they searched the scriptures and as holy men they wanted to get to the bottom of what the scriptures really say so that they could define orthodoxy and then tell everybody else what orthodox Christianity is. Well, the historical record shows something different. The historical record really shows these guys were like the mafia. It's like organized crime, gangsters who happen to be philosophers. So, so think of mafia, an intellectual mafia who are using religion to advance their power and advance their careers. And when they come together, it's not, oh, brother, what's your view on this? Okay, well, this is how I see it. Uh, what does the scripture really say here? They are arguing. They are fighting. There's fist fights. Very, it's a very ugly council. And what's also interesting, this same Constantine, who basically said this is insignificant, uh, he not only called the council of these quote-unquote bishops and theologians, but he himself participated in it. Well, that's really interesting. When the most powerful man in the world, the man who is ruling the world, participates in trying to define what we should believe as Christians, it's going to be very hard to go up against him. You know, you know maybe we would think of Saddam Hussein, who whenever, he, whenever there was an election... Uh, he would get 100% of the votes. Well, in the West, you know, would we say, wow, the Iraqi people really love this leader. You know, he must be a great leader. Or did we say, well, obviously they're intimidated. And, and you know, it's quite clear. Maybe today, in, here in uh, 2014, the, the closest example we might have to the power that Constantine had over, his, over this, uh, this council would be to think of a leader like Kim, Kim Jong-il of North Korea calling a council and having an opinion and wondering if everybody agrees with him. Well, I think everybody would agree with him. And that's basically what happened in this council with, um, with uh, Constantine. That they were back and forth, back and forth. In fact, what happened was the, Arian, the Arius position was presented by Eusebius of Nicomedia because Arius was not a bishop and this was a council of bishops. So the presbyters could come, but they couldn't vote and they couldn't uh, present the case. So Eusebius of Nicomedia presented the case for Arius. He came out swinging. Now, most of the, the bishops there were not really clear one way or the other what they believed. There was a small percentage, about 20, that believed what Arius taught and a small percentage, maybe around 20 as well, that believed what the Bishop Alexander taught. The rest really weren't clear, and they were willing to listen to both sides and see who says what. Eusebius of Nicomedia, when he presented the Arian view, he presented it so strong, so confrontationally, and made it clear that Christ is not God, he's not a deity, that he's just a man, he's just a created being, and presented such a powerful case that it shocked everybody. And they immediately were, were uncomfortable with the Arian view. 
And even the Aryan bishops, the, 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 the 18 or so, there were 20, but about 18 of them who uh, were believing in Arius, when they saw the reaction, the hostile reaction of the council toward what Eusebius of Nicomedia presented, they quickly flip-flopped and said they don't believe that anymore. And what happened was Eusebius of Caesarea, another Eusebius, he then presented a more balanced view, a, a creed that he used, a, a baptismal creed that he used in, in Caesarea. He presented that. And these defectors from Arius quickly signed it. They said, oh yeah, we'll sign that. Well, because these guys signed it so quickly, the rest of the bishops were suspicious about this Eusebius of Caesarea's creed. And they were unwilling to sign it unless it was clear that it was against the Arian view. And so it had to be massaged. And there was a man called Athanasius who was a presbyter under Alexander. And he would, uh, eventually Alexander would die. Alexander was an older man. And he would be championing the cause for the Trinitarian perspective. But this... Um, Creed was then developed, written up, and in order to change the creed that Eusebius of Caesarea wrote, to make it clear that it is not an Arian view, another bishop called Hoseus, who was Constantine's right-hand man, suggested that they put the word homoousius in the creed. Homoousius is a Greek term, it's not found in the Bible, that means of the same essence. That Christ is of the same essence as, as the Father. And the Arian bishops asked, could we instead use the word homoiousius, homoiousius, which means of a similar essence. So it's not the same essence, but it's similar. So the Arian bishops would be willing to sign it if they put homoiousius. But Constantine, basically the day was running long, and Constantine said, no, we're going to go with homoousius. I like homoousius. Let's go with homoousius and let's conclude the meeting. Does anybody, is anybody unwilling to sign the, the creed if we put homoousius on? Well, everybody agreed except for Arian, uh, Arius and two other uh, members that were, or, or um, elders that were there. And so they were immediately excommunicated. Uh, including Eusebius of Nicomedia, excommunicated, and everyone else willingly, quickly signed this uh, creed that had homoousius, that Christ is of the same essence. And that began then this creed of Nicaea to explain the Trinity, which is a very weak explanation of the Trinity. Basically, they, they really emphasize the divinity of Christ because the question was not around the Holy Spirit. The question was around Christ. And Arius was being reasonable as a Greek philosopher that was influenced by Pythagoras, well, influenced by Plato, who was influenced by Socrates, who was influenced by Pythagoras, to say that the material world is evil. So how on earth could God become matter, become flesh? So it's easier to think, well, Christ is not God. He's a creation of God, a very special creation created before everything else, but still a creation. Now we can reconcile the gospel and Christianity and Christ with Greek philosophy. 
So, so basically, Arius was just like one of them trying to understand the gospel and, and made this conclusion well. And in fact, it wasn't even his. He got it from the, the apologists, the, the um, philosophers. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tertullian. This is where he got it from. And that's why he accused Alexander of, um, uh, of uh, heresy. Now listen to this. Speaking of the Council of Nicaea that this is from a book called The Story of Christianity, Volume 1, by Justo Gonzalez. And he says this. Just listen to this very carefully. At first the assembly sought to rebut Arianism through a series of passages of scripture. But it soon became evident that by limiting itself to biblical texts, the council would find it very difficult to express its rejection of Arianism in unmistakable terms. So in other words, they didn't know their Bibles well enough to reject what Arius was teaching. And they found that by using the Bible, they ran out of steam and they couldn't rebut Arius. So they had to go outside of the Bible and rely on creeds, Greek philosophical creeds, in order to rebut Arianism. And the Trinitarian doctrine was not developed to try to understand who and what God is. It was developed by Greek philosophers who were arguing with each other around whether or not God could become flesh. And, and yet they knew absolutely Christ was flesh. So, so some saw this, over 500 brethren saw this, some of them Greek, some of them Greek philosophers. And yet the Greek philosophical mind couldn't get its head around this. And so great minds like Origen, like Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, basically explained it away by saying Christ was not God. And that's what Arius taught. And they couldn't rebut him with the Bible. So they found it, they would find it very difficult to express... Uh, let me just read this again. At first the assembly sought to rebut Arianism through a series of passages of Scripture. But it soon became evident that by limiting itself to biblical texts, the council would find it very difficult to express its rejection of Arianism in unmistakable terms. It was then decided to agree on a creed that would express the faith of the church in such a way that Arianism was clearly excluded. So this nice Nicene Creed was not developed by searching the scriptures to see what does it really say about God. It was developed to contradict a very charismatic man named Arius, who was teaching something that they couldn't contradict from the Bible so they therefore decided to make up a creed and word it in such a way that you couldn't sign that creed unless you rejected what Arius taught. And, and uh, having homoousius as part of the terminology was critical to stamping out Arianism. So they go on and they say they, they develop this creed, which is a very weak Trinitarian creed. So even though we call the, the, it call the um, Trinitarian doctrine or the creed the Nicene Creed, it really is better referred to as the Athanasian Creed. And it's a creed that was refined. It evolved over time. And it was refined in the uh, Council of Constantinople in 381. And then it's really not until the 5th century, or even into the 6th century, that we finally have the creed pinned down in the format that we have today that we call the Athanasian Creed. And it's been said that the creed, as it evolved, it got more and more specific. The the unwillingness, any unwillingness to sign it or agree to it 
was met with greater and harsher punishment. So, so in, in fact, there's another um, historical record that showed that more Christians have died as a result of the Trinity doctrine and, and it being enforced on Christians than all the Christians that died at the hands of pagan and Roman emperors, pagan, pagan um, opposition and Roman emperors. Now, in addition to defining the nature of God in this creed, and at the end, it just says they believe in the Holy Spirit, and, and they don't really define the Holy Spirit because it wasn't the debate wasn't about the Holy Spirit. The debate was about whether or not Christ was God. But at the end, they say is that they, the bishops had to sign off on this. Those who say there was a time when he was not, i.e., Arius. Those who say there was a time when he was not. So anybody who agrees with Arius, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing. Or he is another substance or essence. And again, the Hebrew Bible says nothing about God being an essence. Yet he is of another substance or essence. Or the Son of God is created or changeable. So again, God can't be changeable in the Greek philosophy. Or alterable. They are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So this hostile language that is associated with the Trinity doctrine, it's coming from ego. Alexander had a big ego, Arius had a big ego, they got into a big fight, Arius lost, and Alexander is basically sticking it to him. And Athanasius, after Alexander dies, this conflict will continue for another six decades, and Athanasius has a big ego, and he's going to stick it to Arius as well, and all of the Arian followers. And, and so, you know, my question is, if these are holy men who are trying to understand the nature of God, and our Greek philosophers, who have a certain teaching that has come down to them through centuries from Pythagoras, through St. Socrates and St. Plato, if these are saints and we accept them as schoolmasters. And Arius is basically just trying to reconcile the Bible to Greek philosophy. Why would you condemn, and you believe that when they die they go to hell and burn forever, why would you excommunicate them and condemn them why instead wouldn't you exercise the most patience and loving concern and say, we need to help our fellow Christians understand the true nature of God? And those who say that there was a time when he was not, we need to sit down with them and go through the scriptures and get them to understand that he is, he is God. Why would you have such harsh language, such destructive language, such punishing language, and then call yourself a Christian? Well, it's interesting. Constantine was the one who was running the show. He called himself a Christian. After this council, he would put his son Crispus to death simply because of Crispus's popularity. People loved Constantine. The people loved Constantine, but they loved his son more. And Constantine didn't like that he put him to death. He put his wife to death because there was a rumor that she had committed adultery. And he would murder many more people. He was, he was a bloody man. And he didn't accept baptism until he was on his deathbed because he had many people to murder. He was a ruthless man. And the teaching, the Greek philosophical teaching, was that once you were baptized, you, you couldn't commit major sins because there's only one baptism and you would never be uh, forgiven again. You know, Greek Plato was all about ethics and, and works and, and, and working your way to goodness. And the, the, these, none of these men have any understanding of grace. 
they're just pushing the Trinity doctrine and you must believe the Trinity doctrine. And, and they have no concept of what true Christianity is. But in any case, coming back to Constantine, uh, as the one who decided on the Trinitarian doctrine, that it, then how, how orthodoxy would be defined, a few years later, he switched sides and became an Arian. And on his deathbed, when he, when, when he was on his deathbed and he finally wanted to be baptized, he called for none other than Eusebius of Nicomedia, the Arian bishop. The, the champion Arian bishop. And he was baptized by an Arian bishop. And he's the one that defined ortho, that orthodoxy would be Christianity. So very, very interesting. The other thing about uh, this council at Nicaea, which we think all these holy men came together to discuss and explore and define orthodoxy, really it's better for us to think of them as gangsters, mobsters, ruthless thugs, who just happened to be uh, somewhat intellectual as well. The Council of Nicaea was also used to stamp out the Passover and to tell Christians that we are, you are not to keep the Passover, you are to keep Easter. And Constantine wrote to the churches immediately after the Council of Nicaea and said this, Constantine, August, to the churches. When the question arose concerning the most holy day of Easter, it was decreed by common consent, so everyone agreed, to be expedient that this festival should be celebrated on the same day by everybody. So some were celebrating Easter, others were celebrating Passover. Easter was always on a Sunday. Passover could be any day of the week. They usually had the, uh, the new converts to fast and, the, and their ministers fast before uh, Easter so that they could be baptized. and Or before Passover, uh, they would have... Um, a feast, and so so those were some were fasting, some were feasting. It was creating confusion, and they stamped out Passover. And it says this. He goes on to say, "This festival should be celebrated on the same day by all in every place." And I'm quoting this just the characters. So you get the character of of Constantine and the character of the people, these bishops that were meeting. It seemed to everyone a most unworthy thing that we should follow the custom of the Jews in the celebration of this most holy solemnity, who, polluted wretches, having stained their hands with a nefarious crime, are justly blinded in their minds. He goes on, I'll just skip a bit here, he goes on to say, let us have nothing in common with the most hostile rabble of the Jews. He goes on to say, let us withdraw ourselves, my much-honored brethren, from that most odious fellowship. Then he goes on to say, um, to have no fellowship with the perjury of the Jews. There is an intense hatred toward the Jews by everyone present, apparently, according to Constantine. He hates the Jews. He wants nothing to do with them. And he wants his whole empire to hate them, to, to see them as the killers of Christ, to see them as the most odious people. Are these holy Christians? Are these Christians who see the foundation of the church as the apostles and the prophets, who were all Hebrews? All the apostles were Jews? Would any of the apostles be accepted into this assembly? We've got some serious questions that we have to ask here. The historical record is against the Trinitarian doctrine. Amos 3, Amos 3 and verse 1 says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. O children of Israel. 
This is a message to the children of Israel. Against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. Amos 3 verse 2 is a very important verse. Yes, Socrates was a brilliant man. Plato was a brilliant man. Aristotle was a brilliant man. These are all brilliant, brilliant men. But they did not know God. God says to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. So the Greeks are a family. And there are many families of the earth. In fact, many of these great uh, apostolic fathers were Africans. Arius was an African. Athanasius was an African. God is saying the only family of the earth that he has known is Israel and none, nobody else. So when you reject Israel, you're rejecting God. And Constantine's saying we reject the Jews. We want nothing to do with them. Our foundation are the church fathers, the Greeks. Well, I'm sorry. God doesn't say that he knows the Greeks. He says he knows Israel. In fact, look at Matthew 15. Matthew 15, verse 21, where Jesus is teaching. And here most people would say that, you know, Jesus is, the, we're, we're New Covenant Christians. New Covenant Christians, we believe in Jesus. Jesus is for everybody. Mm, I don't know. Let, let's read what the scripture says. Matthew 15. Matthew 15 and verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts. So this would be an African woman, came out of the coasts, and cried to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. She acknowledges him as Lord. Goes further, You son of David. Understands that he's coming through the line of David. So there's some knowledge that she has of the Israelite covenant. And she addresses him properly. He's the Lord, and he's the son of David. And she has a very severe trouble. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. This is serious. But he ignored her. Verse 23 says he has answered her not a word. Didn't even, didn't even look at her. Just ignored her. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. So when he ignored her, she went after the disciples, begging, begging them to do something. And so they begged him, please send her away. Notice verse 24. Jesus Christ answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You only, of all the families of the earth, have I known. God says, Christ says here, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and she worshipped him. So now she's worshipping him, acknowledging who he is, saying, Lord, help me. Please help me. She's begging now. What did Christ do? Oh, sure, I'll help you. Verse 26. But he answered and said, It's not appropriate to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Mm. This is not comfortable. This is Jesus Christ. This is a woman in trouble. This is a woman acknowledging him for who he is and begging him for help. 
And all he has to say is, first of all, nothing. He just ignores her. And when she worships him and begs, then he finally speaks to her and says, it's not appropriate for me to give the bread for the children and give it to the dogs. He called her a dog. And basically all humanity are no better than dogs. Unless we're in the covenant of Israel. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Verse 27. And she said, that's true, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you, even as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. So this woman understood that God had a covenant specifically and exclusively with Israel. And she didn't challenge that. And her faith was in the knowledge of who God is and that his covenant with man is with Israel. And she acknowledged that. And he, Jesus Christ, was impressed. And he said, you know what? Your, 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 your hope, your prayer is granted because of your great faith. So notice very clearly, Christ came for Israel. Now look in the New Testament. When I say we're New Testament Christians, New Covenant Christians, in the New Testament, let's look at Hebrews 8. <clears throat> Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 6. But now has he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon the better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So there's an old covenant and there's a new covenant. But there was a problem with the old covenant. Verse 8. For finding fault with them, with the people. The problem was the people. They broke the covenant. He said, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So the old covenant was with Israel and the new covenant. Israel was uh, one unit back then with the old covenant. Now Israel is divided into Israel and Judah. And the new covenant will be with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So Israel really comprises both Israel, the northern tribes, and the southern tribe of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make, notice this, with the house of Israel. We're talking about the new covenant. The old covenant was with Israel, the new covenant was is with Israel. And Jesus Christ acknowledged the Canaanite woman when she acknowledged that his relationship with man is through Israel, not with the Greeks. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. So the new covenant will be different. It's a spiritual covenant, but it is still with the house of Israel. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. So now when we come to Acts 15, this is the gospel now being opened up and Paul being recruited to take the gospel message to the Gentiles, not for them to make up their own religion, not for them to make up their own Trinitarian doctrines, not for them to have a different foundation that's a Greek foundation, a Greco-Roman foundation. Instead, the gospel is being opened up for Greeks and all other Gentiles to come into the commonwealth of Israel, which we read earlier in, in, in Ephesians 2. Acts 15, verse 6, when they had their council, it was all Jews 
having this council, trying to figure out what to do with the Gentiles. You know, within a hundred years, within a hundred years of this, we're going to have Jews being tossed out of the church, and and Greeks taking over, and and hating the Jews. What a turn of events! What a complete turning upside down of the true religion. Acts fifteen verse six. And the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. The matter being the Gentiles, whether or not they have to. Uh, be circumcised, and what they need to do to be part of this covenant. And when there had been much disputing, this was a big deal. And we see this big deal over circumcision, basically. And we don't see any big deal like this over Trinity. The Jews were in captivity because of idolatry. And they came out of there saying, there's one God, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And if we're going to go back to them now and say, now you have to worship uh, Christ and the Holy Spirit, there would be much dispute. And in fact, we see in the scriptures, there's dispute about Christ calling himself God. But there's no dispute over the Holy Spirit. So it says here, Acts 15, verse 7, there was much disputing, is a big argument. Peter rose up finally and said to them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago, God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth, this is referring to Cornelius, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter himself saw this. And then Paul is also saying, and, and Barnabas, the, the success they're having teaching the gospel to the, the Gentiles. And notice this in verse 8. And God, which knows the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us. The Holy Spirit was not new to the Jews. They knew the Holy Spirit. They knew that that's how God activates and, and, and manifests his, his, his work and his plan in the world, through the Holy Spirit. And what surprised them, being very familiar with the Holy Spirit, was that the Gentiles were given the Holy Spirit just as they had it. It wasn't like the Holy Spirit is a person that needs to be worshipped and God is a trinity and these three are one and one is three. None of that. But what was shocking was that the Gentiles had the Holy Spirit, even as the Jews did, the Jewish Christians, and has put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And if you look at Matthew one eighteen, speaking of the Holy Spirit, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit is a person, and Mary is found with child from the Holy Spirit, then we've been making a big mistake calling God the Father. We should be calling the Holy Spirit the Father, because he's a person apparently. And he's the one that impregnated Mary. Well, this is absolute nonsense. The Jews understood the Holy Spirit is the power of God, and it's how he works and activates his will in the world. So what I wanted to show you on this uh, slide very quickly, you can look this over, how many councils, the council at Nicaea did not solve this problem, that even though uh, people were coerced, the bishops were coerced and forced to sign the creed at Nicaea, they still went on, many of them, teaching whatever it is they believed in the first place. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And so for the next six decades, there would be all kinds of controversy back and forth between whether or not Arian's view is the true view of the Godhead or the Trinitarian view is the true, the true view of the Godhead. Now, both of them are completely false. It's just Greek philosophers arguing with each other. But they go back and forth, and there's some 25 councils 
that are held in different locations. And the majority of them, because we're dealing with Greek-minded people, people influenced by Greek philosophy going back as far as Pythagoras, the majority of the councils rule in favor of Arius. It is a complete accident of history that the Trinitarian view became the Orthodox view, that the Catholic Church should really have an Arian view of Orthodoxy, because this is the way most of the population, the bishops as well as the general population, this made more sense to them, that Christ was a, a very special creation, the first creation, but he was a creation, and he was not God. However, Theodosius, a Roman emperor, late in the you know, 379 uh, council, he became Athanasian through and through. Uh, he really, and Athanasius is the one that took over from um, uh, Alexander when Alexander died. And he became the champion of Trinitarianism, and he was like a bulldog. And we'll talk a little bit more about his character in a minute. But um, Theodosius, when he became emperor, he completely adopted Athanasian's view. So much so that he made it illegal to believe anything else. And not only did he exile people who didn't believe, he punished them. He punished them for believing anything other than the Trinitarian view. And so he managed to stamp out the, Arius, the Arian view and burned everything that Arius wrote. Today we have nothing firsthand from Arius. All of his writings were completely burned, completely stamped out. Anything that we have of the Arian view is what people wrote about what Arian, Arius wrote. So Theodosius did a thorough job of stamping out Arius's uh, doctrine as, uh, so that people couldn't access it in, in written form. So you know, maybe people continue to rewrite what he wrote, but none of his writings are extant. Now, the council at 335 at Tyre, uh, Athanasius was not a, a good person. And he, was, he was a bulldog. And again, the best way to think of these guys, most of these guys, is as gangsters, mafia, who, who stop at no, no limits to, to enforce their will. You know, ruling a church was a way to, to get rich. And, and these guys understood that. And Athanasius, in 335, was, was exiled by Constantine. And he was accused and found guilty of murder, kidnapping, witness intimidation, and embezzling funds to hire thugs to murder people. And the evidence was so overwhelming that even Constantine had to, had to agree uh, that he was guilty and exile him, despite the fact that he was a supporter, a very strong supporter of the Trinitarian doctrines. So, you know, we're presented this man, Athanasius, as a, as a hero of orthodoxy. And I'm sorry, the historical, the historical record says differently. It says that he was no Christian. The Protestants have this slogan, Sola Scriptura. You know, when Martin Luther went to Rome and he saw the absolute corruption that was there, he was sick. And he basically came up with his theses and, and con contradicted the Pope and said, sola scriptura. 
you know, don't talk to me unless you can talk to me from the Bible. I don't, I don't, I don't care what you have to say unless it comes from the Bible. And all the great reformers, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, um, uh, John Calvin, all of these great reformers, including Martin Luther, all hung on to this foundation of the Reformation movement, sola scriptura. And even though the Protestants say this, it's not quite true. Because all Protestants accept the first seven ecumenical councils of the Catholic Church. And these ecumenical councils basically are saying, we have a direct line back to the apostles. We therefore, what we say, is on an equal footing to the scripture. And so when we, in the first ecumenical council, when we decide on the uh, wording of the doctrine of the Trinity, that this is revelation, and it's equal to the Bible. And in fact, if you look at the Catholic Encyclopedia, it actually says very clearly that the Protestants are basically hypocrites for saying sola scriptura. Listen to what the Catholic Church says in its encyclopedia. This is taken from the Catholic Encyclopedia. And it says this about the um, doctrine of the Trinity. It says, It is obvious, it's manifest, that a dogma so mysterious presupposes a divine revelation. So this, this dogma is just so mysterious that it's obvious that divine revelation is involved. When the fact of revelation, understood in its full sense as the speech of God to man, is no longer admitted, the rejection of the doctrine follows as a necessary consequence. I hope you got that. What this is saying is this. That if you reject the notion of divine revelation, and we define that as God speaks to man. So yes, we have the scripture, but in addition to the scripture, we, the Catholic Church, also have divine revelation. And if you reject that, because we have a, a, an unbroken line back to the apostolic fathers, and God speaks through revelation through the apostles, but also through us. And if you reject that, then of necessity, it's a logical consequence that the rejection of the Trinity follows as a necessary consequence. For this reason, listen to this, the Catholics are saying, for this reason it has no place in the liberal Protestantism of today. In other words, if you're a Protestant, you believe in sola scriptura, scripture alone. Well, if it's scripture alone, the Catholic Church is saying, don't even bother trying to prove the Trinity from the scriptures. Because we're the ones who made it up. And we didn't get it from the scripture. We, we claim it's divine revelation. That we got it from divine revelation. And so if you don't accept that we, the Catholic Church, have a direct line to God, and we have divine revelation, then you have to reject the Trinity doctrine. That's in the Catholic Encyclopedia. Anybody can look this up.
So all of the Christian denominations that you see on this chart come from the root of the Roman Catholic Church. And their foundation, so you know, whether you're Eastern Orthodox, whether you're Anglican, whether you're Oriental Orthodox, or, or you're part of the Reformation movement, all of these denominations come out of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church has rejected the Hebraic root of, of the Church. That their root is the Apostolic Fathers, the revelation that comes through the unbroken line of the Apostolic Fathers, so that tradition is equal to Scripture, or even maybe superior to Scripture since it's up-to-date. And the apologists, the Greek philosophers. But the true Church has as its foundation the Hebrew prophets and the Hebrew, the Jewish apostles. So we have to decide, are we part of this branch of the Roman Catholic Church? Is that our root? Or do we really trace our roots back to the church, the first early church, first century church of the Bible, which is a Hebraic church, a church rooted in, in the Hebrew scriptures? So again, let's go back to where we started, that the devil deceives the whole world. The majority of people on the planet are not Christians. Some two-thirds of the world's population are Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, all these other religions, or atheist. And the part of humanity that accepts Christ, the majority of them find their root in the Catholic Church with a Greco-Roman version of Christianity. And the definition of Christianity from the Bible is not whether or not one accepts an Athanasian creed that no one understands. There's not a person on the planet that can explain the Trinitarian doctrine. The most intelligent people simply say it's a mystery. Nobody can understand it. Nobody can explain it. When we look at the Bible, there's a very simple definition of who and what is a Christian. It simply says, Romans 8, verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's not a Christian. And we saw earlier, you know, men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. That is the definition of a Christian, one who has received the Holy Spirit. Not whether or not we, can, we accept and agree to and are, allow ourselves to be bullied and intimidated into the Trinitarian doctrine. So I hope it's very, very clear that the historical record shows very, very clearly that the Trinitarian doctrine does not come from the Bible. What we want to do and what I do in the next message, so you really need to listen to these two messages together, so very first, completely discredit the Trinitarian doctrine. But now, who and what is God? You know, there's a Unitarian view. So we, we know the Trinitarian view is not true. But there's a Unitarian view that says God is one. And therefore, Christ is not God. And that's really what Arius was teaching. 
And there's also a Binitarian view that says that Christ is God and that God and Christ are equal. The Holy Spirit is the power of God, but Christ and God, the Father, are God. And I want to show, and I do show in this other message, that that is also not true, not correct. And so we need to understand who and what is God. Please, after you've listened to this message and digested it, uh, please listen to this other message, which we step back from history and we completely immerse ourselves in the Word of God to understand who and what is God.